Thank you, Janelle. That's quite a way to weave through there, isn't it? That's fun. Uh, hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, I know it's already been said, but let me just uh, take a moment here to acknowledge all the moms in the room. Uh, we appreciate you. We literally would not be here without moms. And so we thank you for all that you do and all that you represent into the world. We appreciate you and we love uh, you moms. So uh, now, uh, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that now I'll give my apology that that is the the extent of my Mother's Day sermon. Uh, 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 moms, I... I respect your intelligence and and your interest in Scripture, so I'm sure you won't be offended if we go ahead and continue on in our study in the Gospel of John this morning. So uh, that's what we're going to do. So if you'd like to follow along in the Gospel of John, if you'll find your way to John chapter 5, please. We have said... Am I hearing murmurs of like, uh... I'm sorry. This is just the way it goes. <laughs> this is Eastgate. Uh, uh, we've said repeatedly... That, that, that John's narrative of Jesus is less a chronological history, and it is more that John is teaching theology by telling stories. And that is never more true than the section we're about uh, to read today. We're going to be reading about the fallout from the section that we read last week. And just to get everybody up to speed, Jesus was in Jerusalem, and he found a man by the pool of Bethesda, who was, had been unable to walk for 38 years. And so Jesus healed the guy. The sticking point in this, or the perceived crime of this, was that it took place on Sabbath. And Jesus, after he had healed the man, told the man to pick up his mat and, and go home, to walk home. And so the guy then was accosted by the religious leaders for violating their Sabbath rules. And I say their Sabbath rules because... The, the rules or the laws that they were enforcing were not part of the Torah. They were part of the, the laws that were written to help enforce the Torah. It was called the Mishnah, the rules on keeping the rules. So the guy explained that the person who had healed him from this 38-year malady was the one who told him to get up and, and carry his mat and go home. And so he did. And at this point, he didn't even know who Jesus was. He was clueless as to his identity. So this is the event that caused a big stir among the religious leadership. Now, I want to clarify quickly that sometimes people will take issue with the Gospels, and John in particular, uh, saying that they portray Judaism in a bad light in, in these stories. And I, I just want to say that John is not, I don't believe John is trying to portray Judaism in, in a bad light. It, it's a critique on systems, not race. And, and he's pushing back against an erroneous and shallow application uh, of Judaism that the leader, religious leaders had developed at that time. And that sort of thing can happen to any group of people. It doesn't matter who they are. Anyone can fall into the snare uh, of transferring their loyalty from God to something associated with God. Uh, but we'll get to that later. So a stir has been caused. This man is carrying a bedroll on the Sabbath. And when we left off, the man had just identified Jesus as the one who had healed him to the religious leaders. And that's where our text uh, begins today. And if you're there in John chapter 5, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 13. They learn that Jesus is the one who healed this man 
So the Jewish leaders began celebrating and rejoicing in God for all the wonderful things he's done and the amazing healing that was brought to this man who lifted him up from his condition and restored... Nah, forget it. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, My father's always working, and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For not only, for he not only broke the Sabbath, and in the Greek, it's habitually. So it's, he not only habitually broke the Sabbath, he was always breaking these Sabbath rules. He called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. Okay, so we see that the hostility has ramped up here. Jesus' death is in view all the way back at at uh, verse, uh, you know, in the fifth chapter of this gospel. So the, the religious leaders accost Jesus over this issue. And Jesus' defense is, hey, you know, my dad works on the Sabbath. I just do what he does. And John points out that their anger at Jesus is not a misunderstanding. It's not that they're confused about what he's saying. They get what he's declaring, that he's equal with God. It's just that they don't believe it and they consider it to be blasphemy. And that sets the stage for a really long monologue by Jesus. And it's a monologue that is dense with theological insights. Honestly, it makes my head spin getting into it. Uh, the, the challenge for me this week was distilling this down into some manageable insights for us. But in reality, to do this section justice, we'd have to probably spend the rest of the year on it because there is just so much uh, in this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through this in sections and try to explain what's being said here as best I can, and then see what the overall emphasis is, what our takeaway could be. Is that cool? I mean, it's like, I'm sure you, some of you are like, Happy Mother's Day. But, you know, it's just, I mean, so... What are we going to do? <laughs> You're stuck now, right? <laughs> so this, is, this largely has to do with the nature of who Jesus is. So uh, I, I would say that it's the primary source for the doctrines that the church has developed concerning the nature of Jesus. We call that, theologically, we call that Christology. And we are followers of Jesus. So we're gathered here, we're doing this, we're here on a Sunday morning, sun is bright and shining and the beach is beautiful, but we're here because we're followers of Jesus. And so it seems pretty important to me that we have at least a little idea of who it is that we're following. Why is he important? What is he to us? Is he a good moralist? Is he a kind teacher? Is he more than that? And, and that's what we're going to try to suss out of this text today. So we're going to keep reading here, verse 19. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does... The, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he's doing. In fact, the father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. Then you'll truly be astonished. So Jesus is setting up here what we would consider to be a rabbinical style of argument, meaning he's going to proceed from the lesser to the greater. Like, if this is true, then that is even more true. That's kind of the, the way the argument develops. So he begins by unfolding this unique relationship uh, that he has with God, calling him his, his father, personally calling him his father. And again, I know it's Mother's Day, but this is where we landed in, in the text. Some days that works out great. You know, Humble House was here and I'm teaching on the woman at the well. Woo, this is awesome. Did you plan that? No, I didn't. Well, this is the other day where 
it landed a different way. So I'm sorry, but so, so this is so. What's happening here? What Jesus doing God's work is not what's making him unique in this. People have been doing God's work all along, all through the biblical narrative. It's that he he claims this familial relationship with God, calling him his father, his personal father. And that's a relationship that goes beyond anything that the prophets, anything that Israel, for that matter, had seen before. So Jesus presents God as a father, always at work. And Jesus is in a unique position to see what God is up to, able to see like through the matrix and see what's happening, what God is doing. And, and then he becomes a conduit through which the father is doing these things, which God is, is making these things actively happen. Okay, verse 21. For just as the father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the son gives life to anyone he wants. In addition, the Father judges no one. Instead, he's given the Son absolute authority to judge so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who doesn't honor the Son is certainly not honoring the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me... uh, uh, How did I word this? Those who listen to my and believe in God have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sin, but but they have already passed from death into life. Okay, so again, the rabbinical argument goes from lesser to greater. Not only does his identity as God's son give him the authority to do these good things on Sabbath, tell this guy to carry his mat, but that authority extends even farther than that to life itself. Okay, the claims have just gotten way bigger in what he's saying here. And he's giving us insight as to, into what it is that he's been doing in his ministry. He's raising the spiritually dead back to divine life, a life reconciled with God and led by God's Spirit. And not only that, this, ex- this authority extends beyond life into divine judgment and eternal life. So clearly, <laughs> we have spilled the banks of the original argument here. This isn't just about the authority to tell someone they can carry a little bedroll on Sabbath day. This is divine cosmic authority that the religious leaders are meddling with. And all of this authority that Jesus is claiming here is stuff that was attributed to God in the Old Testament. So the question comes out, you know, did Jesus ever claim to be God? Here we're seeing very clearly, yes. And and I'm not going to take the time to go look at all these scriptures. We're going to be doing a lot of scripture reading today. So, you know, if you take notes, jot down Genesis 2, 7, Deuteronomy 32, 39. God is declared to be the only one, the sole giver of life. Judgment is the work of God. Genesis 18.25, Judges 11.27. Those are just to name a few. Judgment and life, those are all the things that God does. And Jesus here is ascribing these divine attributes to himself. And the next section becomes a coded message, which I'm sure was not lost on the religious leaders of that day. It gets lost on a lot of modern readers, but let's keep reading here. And I assure you, Jesus is still talking. I assure you that the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who listen will live. The Father has life in himself, and he has granted that same life-giving power to his Son. And he has given him authority to judge everyone because he is the Son of Man. Don't be so surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life. Those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. Okay, 
I say this section is a coded message because it's a hyperlink to another book in the Bible, a prophetic book called uh, Daniel uh, the Prophet, Daniel 7 and Daniel 12. In Daniel 7, the prophet there is seeing the successive empires that rise and fall throughout human history. And it culminates here when he says, I saw someone like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So Daniel's describing what he saw is some son of man, some type of human who ascends to God's heaven and is given equal reign with God to act as a life giver and a judge. Exactly what Jesus was saying to the religious leaders there. Coupled with that, Daniel 12, it all culminates. His whole vision culminates with this, that many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. Jesus is self-identifying as that mysterious son of man. And he even calls himself that in, in verse 27. And he's, you know, saying, don't be surprised by this. This equal with God human who gives life, whose kingdom will never end, who raises the dead at the end of the age. I can only imagine the jaw-dropped silence of those who are listening to him say this. This is huge, what Jesus has just dropped on them. And so Jesus fills the silence with a summation in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. Okay, so what he just said there in verse 30, that's the point. If you're, you know, if you're zoning out, come back for just a minute. This is it. This is the point. This is the takeaway concerning who Jesus is and what it means to us. What Jesus says and does is our fullest revelation of God's character and will. Jesus is the flesh and blood representation through whom God is revealing himself, is revealing what his purposes are in the world. Jesus reveals God's will. Jesus reveals God's judgment. Now, I know that some may get uncomfortable with Jesus identifying himself as the judge. You know, oh, but I thought he was cool, man. I thought this was all about grace. And, you know, and first of all, I want us to notice that how he qualifies his judgment, that it's just. This is just. And we, so we don't have to worry about being misunderstood or wrongly characterized. The judge knows everything. The judge knows uh, everything already. But here's the thing. What Jesus' statements are revealing is the, the stuff that he does in his ministry and the words that he's saying in his teaching. What Jesus is getting across here is that is the execution of God's judgment. It's a revelation for us uh, about who God is and what his intentions are. I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm going to tell you, I was reading over this the last few weeks, contemplating how to handle this characterization of Jesus as judge, even a just judge. And I'm telling you something hit me like a chill up my spine. Jesus reveals God's judgment or God's foundation for a just judgment. And John's gospel has already revealed to us what God's judgment is. It's already been laid out for us. 
We read it uh, several weeks back. It's a famous set of verses from chapter 3. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent His Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who doesn't believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. In other words, the judgment is already here. This broken world that we're living in is the beginning uh, of that judgment. And now God's judgment through Jesus is the merciful offer of rescue. Remember, judgment. We have a a singular way of applying that concept of judgment. We say judgment and right away we're thinking, yeah, get them. You know, this is about punitive stuff. We're going to get the people who did something wrong or whatever. That's judgment. That is not all the biblical concept of judgment. Judgment has two sides to it. It's also setting things right again. So salvation is God's judgment in that he's setting things right He's bringing us back into right relationship. That's his judgment. We're entering into God's desire to set things right in our hearts. So he sets our hearts right again. That's his judgment. Listen, there's a song I like called Us For Them. And the lyrics sum this concept up really well. There is no more guilt. There is no more shame. All our darkest sin, all our deepest pain, Blessed are the poor, the lonely, broken, lost, and torn. See, a kingdom comes to us, a war that's fought with love. Our only war is love. Prepare the way of the Lord, wielding mercy like a sword. Every mountaintop will be made low. No, he holds the earth like dust, and his judgment comes to us, and his judgment is love. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. If we want to know what God is doing, we look at what Jesus did, how he spent his life setting things right again. He is our fullest revelation of God's character and will, and what he reveals is divine love and mercy for the broken. When we think of Jesus as judge, we should be stoked. We should be really stoked. Because his judgment is love. All right, well, let's keep reading quickly here. Verse 31. If I were to testify, this is Jesus still talking. If I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony wouldn't be valid. In the Old Testament law, you had to have two witnesses to uh, confirm something. Uh, But he says, someone else is testifying about me. And I assure you, everything he says about me is true. In in fact, you sent investigators to listen to John the Baptist, and his testimony about me was true. Of course, I have no need of human witnesses, but I say these things so that you might be saved. John was like a burning and shining lamp, and you were excited for a while about his message, but I have a greater witness than John. My teachings and my miracles, the Father gave me these works to accomplish, and they prove that he sent me. And the Father who sent me has testified about me himself. You've never heard his voice or seen him face to face, and you do not have his message in your hearts because you don't believe in me, the one who he sent to you. You search the scriptures 
because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Okay, picking up on the fact that Jesus is on trial here, he calls out his witnesses, and he first points to God himself. God himself is my witness uh, that he's done this. And then he points to John the Baptist. And if you remember at the beginning of this gospel, John identified Jesus as the Messiah. And then he points to his own works, the good stuff that I've done, these healings. You know, we were just talking about a guy who was 38 years uh, invalid. uh, And all of a sudden, overnight, without any, you know, sort of rehab work or anything like that, he's walking again. That's pretty astounding. All the good, the miracles, the divine representations that he's produced in his life. And then he highlights how the scriptures bear witness of him. Scripture, he says, points to me. And that's a heavy set of witnesses. I mean, it's compelling to me, uh, you know, as I, but not apparently to the religious leaders. So then this monologue changes shape. Uh, For all intents and purposes, it looks like Jesus was the one facing the Inquisition here, like he was on trial. But then we read the final part of this and we realize with a shudder that it was the other way around. The religious leaders were on trial, and the verdict on them was dependent on how they viewed Jesus. We'll keep reading. Verse 41, your approval means nothing to me, because I know you don't have God's love within you. For I've come to you in my Father's name, and you've rejected me. Yet if others come in their own names, oh, you gladly welcome them. No wonder you can't believe For you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. Yet if it isn't I who will, yet it isn't I who will accuse you before the Father, Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses, in whom you put your hopes. If you really believed Moses, you'd believe me, because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I have to say? And then, boom, he drops the mic and walks away. So Jesus turns the table. He goes from defense to prosecution. And these are his closing arguments. And in summary, he's telling them something is wrong. Something is very wrong here. And it's with you. They took great pride in following Moses. They saw following his laws as a religious badge of security. But Moses is Jesus' final witness against them because they saw Moses and the law as a marker for acceptability instead of as a pathway to God. They had Moses' words, but they didn't know God. And that was a perilous place to be. But this verdict wasn't just for the religious leaders of first century Palestine. This is a warning to all of us wobbly humans because the error of those religious leaders gets repeated again and again and again is being repeated now in church history and the warning is that a misplaced loyalty to religious doctrine and practice can actually blind us to god's activity and purpose in this world if the problem with these religious leaders were simply an intellectual issue a good explanation could have done the trick here, could have resolved it all. Uh, I mean, a well-worded argument could have turned them around. But Jesus is saying this is deeper than that. This was a spiritual sickness. And the final diagnosis was found in verse 42. You don't have God's love in you. 
They loved. It's not that they didn't have love. They loved. They loved religious life. But they lost sight of loving God. And they lost sight of God's love for people in the process. So the whole purpose for John placing this monologue here is to draw us into this trial. He's forcing us to contemplate what caused these religious leaders to be so blind, to be so out of tune with God's music. Evangelicals in our society are very quick to point the finger at liberal systems that exclude God from their practices, saying that they're swerving us away from God. But listen to me, this was not written to those outside of God's camp. Jesus wasn't speaking to those who don't believe in God at all. It was written to those who call themselves God's people. It was spoken to those whose religious systems were well-defined and so respectable that Jesus became suspect in comparison to them. It was written to people who had lost their love for God, but who remained dependably and aggressively religious. God's activity and purposes are revealed in Jesus, in his love for God, which was reflected as a love for people, not a love for religion. Love must be the center of our pursuit of God's purposes. Love has to be at the center. Divine love, not a nebulous sense of love or uh, attraction or affection or any sort of, you know, uh, simplistic concept like this, but the love that God reveals, that self-sacrificial love and care for our fellow human being. Love has to be the center of our pursuit of God's purposes. And when it isn't love, it'll be something. Something that is either worthless or potentially dangerous. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, If I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels, but I didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. It's very easy for us as God's people to start migrating our loyalties to hot topic issues, to doctrines that square off against what we perceive as cultural decadences, to social causes or a way of life that we want to defend and lose sight of God and his love in the process of it all. Happy Mother's Day to you. So this is where we're going to stop this morning. It's a heavy moment. Moms, I'm sorry. You know, we love you. We really do. But this is a heavy moment. This is where we are. And the question then becomes, what will we do with Jesus? And we've seen, as Jesus has laid this all out, this is the pivotal point, right? I mean, there's a, there's a, it's like a dividing line on this, not whether you're carrying a bedroll on Sabbath, not if you're keeping specific little icks and ticks of religious rules or behavior modification that's demanded from others. Where do we land on Jesus? Who is Jesus to us? And is God's love informing all that we're doing along these lines? 
Will we see Jesus as the fullest revelation of God? Will we emulate his pattern of love? Will we be brave enough to examine all of our religious stances and determine if love for God and love for our fellow human being is at the heart of it? And if it's not, will we be humble enough and honest enough to ask God to renew a right spirit in us? Because I'm telling you, there's no higher calling that we will ever have than to demonstrate God's love into this world just as Jesus did. Well, these are good questions to be asking ourselves, and they're questions that I have to ask my own self. I can't answer any of these questions for anyone else but myself. And the good news is you can't answer them for me, (laughs) and you can't answer them for your neighbor. Each one of us has to determine where we are on this. And our job is not to go around and determine whether or not somebody's done this right. Otherwise, we're right back in fellowship with the religious leaders of Jesus's day. All of these issues are issues for our own hearts. Where do we land on this? Who do we want to be? I pray and I trust that God will guide all of us into his light because in his light is life. Right on? All right, very cool. Thank you for sticking with me today. One more time, happy Mother's Day. (laughs) If you'll stand with me, please. Father... We are faithful to present ourselves before your word. And now we ask you, Father, be faithful to shape our lives by what we've heard. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come to transform us, to renew us in heart and mind and spirit. We trust you, Lord Jesus, to lead us in our lives that we live in this broken world. And Lord, you know how easy it is to get caught up in all of the social currents, whatever they may be, whatever particular rage is the rage on the menu today. Father, deliver us. Deliver us from this. Help us to attune ourselves to your spirit and fill our hearts with your love. Because we know in your love, we'll be safe. So we pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.